Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, can you say Burlington Bulldogs? The latest coming out of Queen's Park regarding the teacher strike. And the Canadian ambassador to, and the Canadian ambassador to China says the chill is real between these two countries and could be for years. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton Bulldogs, could they, be, could they become the Burlington Bulldogs? Uh, here is Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward. She's on the show with Bill Kelly, and they're talking Bulldogs. Listen. My message has always been if um, if you can't work things out with Hamilton and we were respectful waiting for the vote to happen uh, before initiating any conversation, um, but we're open for business. We're open to a conversation. We're, we're not about to write a huge, you know, taxpayer check, but we have other avenues open to us to... Um, you know, if we partner with them or if it has some community benefits, uh, you know, community use, we can, you know, there's tools or incentives or grants that we can provide. There you have it. Uh, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, sports columnist for your Hamilton Spectator. And you can hear him every weeknight right here on CHML. Scott, how are you today? I'm well. I, I don't know if you remember this, but Kirk Douglas was born the same year we started talking about an LRT in the city of Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> ah, and I think he could play, uh, park a Sobe bike on that thing in his chin, too, but I digress. Um <laughs> So, uh, yes. what are your thoughts about this? Uh, are, are the Bulldogs not interested in any sort of new facility in the downtown core, considering we've got a couple of applications for that moving forward? Well, Michael Landlauer would have to answer that question. I, I think the, from what I understand of how this has gone, the, the, the great frustration here from them uh, that has been said publicly many, many times is that he has been pushing and the team has been pushing and to try to get something going in the city as far as, you know, fix the arena, do something, make something happen uh, for a long, long time, years now. And then, and this is, you know, their position on this, that they went to, they had meetings with the mayor and this is what, how, how they described the meetings. They, this was before the election. You've read this story. Andrew Dreschel wrote it very well a little yeah. while back. Um, Michael Landlauer says the mayor and he talked and the mayor says, yeah, don't bring this up before the election. Let's not make this an election issue and muddy the water. So they didn't and they waited and then they bring it up and they get slapped around at council for bringing in an unsolicited last minute bid. I think what's happening right now, quite frankly, if I can read between the tea leaves, is that Michael Landlauer is quite honestly just tired of waiting around for something to happen that if you're in his position, you probably say, I see no evidence that anything is going to happen anytime soon. And even if they give the go-ahead eventually, it'll take years for something to happen. So I really think that the frustration is partly because of the building and the size of the building and everything else, and in large measure, because there's just no evidence that something is going to happen in due course. Uh, that being said, how, how can you say there's no evidence when there's two proposals on the table and before City Council uh, trying to come up with something new for that precinct? Oh, uh, look, absolutely, Scott. That's true. And three proposals, actually, as we yeah, hear. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, no, I think the, the, the skepticism perhaps comes from the fact that he just went through the process of being asked to bring forward yeah. a proposal. yeah. And um, so why put through, why put forward some sort of alternative proposal if you've got plans on doing this all along? 
Well, not only that, but I think there's an awful lot of people in the city who, if they had $100 to wager, would say, this is not something that will happen quickly. Things that go in front of City Hall tend to get ground down into a morass and slow down (laughs) and take forever to happen. And so, yes, these proposals that have come forward in front of the city, look, as soon as they got rid of the the mountain, I thought the mountain was something they should have explored more closely. But when that's gone, okay, so what's the best option that is now in front of us? And there's some parts of these, for sure, that are exciting and that that you look at and you say, wow, those those look pretty good. But again, how quickly is council, is the city, how fast can something get moving? Because, Scott, look, at, at First Ontario Centre, uh, I think it's either three or four years now. Now, they're finally doing it. Mm. But it's either been three or four years yeah. that all the escalators have been broken. Yeah. And you say, how difficult could it possibly be to fix one thing in a public <laughs> building? Yeah. This, is the, this is the thing I believe that a lot of people, including Michael Anlauer, are frustrated by. Yeah, there are some interesting ideas here. But when are they actually going to become real things as opposed to just ideas? So you're thinking the only way this can move forward, and, and by that I mean uh, an arena complex suit- suitable for the Bulldogs, is if it's in uh, the private hands in, within the city limits. In other words, anything that's, that City Hall grabs onto is going to take, uh, uh, you know, 100 years to get complete. To get, uh, you disagree? Do you, I mean, no, that, I, no, not, no. Are you kidding me? Are you no, kidding me? Look at look at everything else in this city. You know, yeah, it was so, funny. It's funny today. You know, they're talking about uh, they're all arguing how they're going to spend their one billion dollars from the government, and you know, there's fighting within city council, and then they're all wondering why they weren't a part of the task force. It's like, are you kidding me? Oh my god. Uh, so, and when you talk to Marianne Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, and you heard her, you played a clip there from Bill. If people want to go and hear the whole interview, it's, it's, it's certainly worth a listen. Go to 900CHML.com, go to shows, go to Bill Kelly's show, see I'm helping you do your work for you here. Um, but you can hear the whole thing there. She sounds so much more enthusiastic about this than I've heard people from Hamilton City Council ever be. And if I'm Michael Landlauer again, and I'm hearing a tone from a politician who sounds really excited about working with me and excited about making something happen and saying things like, we have tools that we can use with grants and other things like this, looking for ways to make something happen rather than saying why it can't. If I'm him, I'm saying that, that may sound a whole lot better and a whole lot more appetizing, to be honest. And really, what this comes down to in the end is, and if I'm, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is Burlington sounds like they can make this happen, whereas Hamilton, it doesn't matter what the issue is. Around and around and around we go, and it it just turns into a bunch, it just turns into a big dilly-dally. I mean, nothing ever gets done. It's one step forward, two steps back. And, you know, obviously the list of examples are as long as your arm. And I don't know, to be honest, I don't know if Burlington can make this happen. Because keep in mind, Burlington has a slightly different political situation as well for something like this, because they have the Halton region that would also have to be involved mm-hmm. politically in this. So you've got a second layer. It's like bringing in Congress and the Senate to make a decision on something. Uh, so, you know, I, I can't stand here and say that I can guarantee you that things will move more smoothly in Burlington. But again, I go back and I say, if you're someone who has been trying seemingly very hard to work with the city of Hamilton for a long time and nothing has happened. At what point do you say, you know what, if someone else says they can make something happen somewhere else, maybe I I start to listen. Uh, Over and above all of this uh, chatter, uh, is Burlington a viable option for this team? Oh, I would think so. Um, 
I mean, you're still sure. you're still in the Golden Horseshoe. I mean, you're still within traveling distance. It's it's very easy, very easily accessed. There are things that would be very positive about Burlington. There are things that wouldn't be as positive about Burlington. I mean, no no place is utopia. Um, not as big a population. Mm. Uh, on the flip side, probably I think almost certainly a more well healed population by and large. So you would think, okay, more disposable income more likelihood people may want to buy tickets, depending where you put the arena, because, of course, that's a big deal. Is it in an area that's easy to get to? Well, Burlington generally is pretty, you know, runs up and down two highways. You, yeah. can, you can get most places in Burlington pretty quickly. It's mm-hmm. also potentially could be close to the goal line or right on the goal line. Yeah. Depending where you Which, it. when you so, think about it, is, a, it, you know, it, it is as much or if not a better situation than on the mountain, although it, it certainly has lots of highway access as well. And then it gets into the question, I mean, here, here's the irony, I wrote this today, that almost everything that Hamilton City Council, uh, every position Hamilton City Council poo-pooed in the Ann Lauer-Lime Ridge proposal, Marianne Mead Ward looked at as a positive. For example, they said, no way to a mall. We're not doing the mall. The mall is not what we're interested in. Marianne Mead Ward says, that's the perfect place for an arena. You want to have other stuff around. So that makes sense. Hamilton City Council said, we can't go to a six to eight thousand seat arena because that's way too small for big shows. Marianne Mead Ward says, "Look, the the trend in entertainment and sports is smaller boutique size mm-hmm. arenas where you get a lot more concerts." On and on and on. So everything that they said, she was on the other side of the pole. Which again, if I'm Michael Landlauer and I've been <laughs> positioning all the points, yeah. And she now echoes and agrees with me on everything. Why would I not want to listen to her? Uh, will this sell as a regional team? Will people from Hamilton go? Will people from Oakville go? Will people from uh, Milton go to see this team? Uh, I would say Burlington, I would expect it'll do okay. I would think that Oakville, it will draw from um, Milton. More than likely, don't forget how big Milton is getting so fast. And they've got a lot of young families there now, which is one of your target demographics for this kind of thing. Will Hamiltonians continue to go? I think there are... um, I would say no. I would say as a general rule, as the casual fan, less so, but they've also got, you know, several thousand diehards who go all the time anyway, who will probably say it's Burlington. It's not like it's moving to Sudbury. Well, Sudbury's got a team, but you know what I mean? And again, when you look at this, you know, when you look at this, if you're going to go up in a helicopter or a plane and go up so many thousand feet and you look at the Golden Horseshoe and Uh all of this, uh, why are we getting stuck on boundaries if you're Michael Andlauer? You know, I mean, geez, what's the, you know, I can certainly see the emotional and personal connection to Hamilton, and I would much rather have the team here than in Burlington. But on the other hand, you know, with, with the city council, I mean, my God, I mean, they just keep tripping over each other, and it doesn't matter who the mayor is. So what we need to see, I think, uh, and I'm, I'm not speaking for Michael Landlar, I don't know if this is his position or not. It may be too late already, I don't know. But I would suggest that probably based on what I know and what I've heard in the past, is we're going to need to see some reasonably swift action on one of these downtown proposals uh, if there's going to be any likelihood that the team stays here. I mean, if this thing ends up, Scott, in another, you know, run through the mud where everything just slows to a crawl and we're fighting over this and fighting over that, 
niggling over this and just, you know, no, that that's, I don't get the sense from everything I've heard that he's interested in waiting for another three or four or five or seven years for something to happen. Like if for another escalator to break down. Well, if this is, and the funny part is they're just fixing the elevator or the escalators now, but no, if this thing can somehow, if this thing can somehow get pushed into high gear and the city can show the kind of urgency that they say they have to do something about this and really reflect that in their actions, I think there is still a chance somehow that this team stays here. But boy, oh boy, if this thing starts to become another stadium or another Red Hill Creek or another... And what makes, you think, and what no makes you think it will not be, Scott? It already has become that. I didn't say I didn't think it could be. I said <laughs> they say, to their credit, and I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, they say they are very, very motivated to do something with this. And because they've got these three, at least three now, because they keep popping up, yeah. but these three seemingly solid, seemingly interested, seemingly well-heeled developers and investors, um, you would seem to have the pieces in place that if you're capable of making a, a decision, you could do that kind of thing reasonably quickly. But it's always about the proof. Will you? I know you can. Yeah. I know it's available to you. <laughs> yeah. Will you make that decision quickly? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, where we are now, uh, considering that, that Hamilton's got a couple of uh, suggestions on the table of, of, of how to revamp uh, First Ontario, uh, Marianne Mee Ward is opening the arms of Burlington saying, yeah, we'll take a look at this. So if we were all of a sudden to drop the green flag now, go. Who could be done faster? Oh, wow. Uh, that's, that's above my pay grade, Scott. I mean, look, I haven't, I, I haven't seen the, uh, enough of the breakdown of what all these proposals are and how complicated things are. I mean, I watched a few minutes yesterday when Jasper Kajaski, who's with the Mercanti Group, was up there showing slides of architectural drawings of the arena, things they have to do. And I looked at it and I went, all right, clearly this is, uh, you know, this is why I'm not an engineer. I have, th- these, are, these are very complicated proposals. Yeah. I, I have no way to tell you who could be done quicker or, uh, but even, you know, quick is important. Scott, I think it's not a question. No, but you said, you said earlier on, how long does Ann Lauer want to wait until something forms at City Hall, uh, with City Council rather? Um, well, if it's going to take that long to build Burlington anyway, again, why not wait to see what happens in Hamilton? Well, and, and again, my point is, I'm not, I'm not talking about how long necessarily it takes to build a place. I mean, I assume that all the development yeah, but let's be honest is, but let, is going to be within a reasonably similar period of time. It's how long are you going to take to make a decision of what yeah. you're going to do? Well, we made a decision to build an LRT, but you know what happened there. Uh, all well, right, I digress. Yeah. Scott no, Radley. No, it's, it's a great point. It's a great question. And look, if they can decide quickly, this team may stay here and other stuff. Maybe if they can get a, pro- a project done within one realm of government uh, instead of having to wait three or four elections all the time. Maybe that has something to do with it. Anyway, we gotta run. We got to run, Scott. We're out of time. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Frankly, I'm exhausted about all this. Anybody <sighs> put my head down for a nap here? Just between the the coronavirus, between the teacher strikes, between impeachment, and you know, by the way, are they still applauding the State of the Union address? Are they still applauding? We can we go a quick uh, to the House? Are they applauding the? Uh, oh yeah, they are. They're still applauding the president. All right, Chandler. 
There you go. Uh, see, it just continues on. It just never, never ends. It never, never, never ends. Extremism. You're either on this side or you're way over there on that side. What happened in the middle? Oh, my goodness. It never ends. Speaking of never ending, we got it all greased up. Ready to go. New bearings and everything. It's time to spin the rotating teacher strike roulette wheel of fun. <laughs> Who is going to be out? Whose life's going to be affected? What parents and kids are walking the plank today? Oh, everybody uh, in the elementary system anyway. Uh, everyone's kids in the elementary system are out today. Oh, and don't make plans for next Tuesday. Going to be out then too. And the hammer tomorrow. Good news. Boy, oh boy. Get one more week, one more day in there. We'd have a, a, we wouldn't have a long weekend. We'd have a whole week off. There they go again. <laughs> All right. It's hard to keep track. Like, honestly, it's like I got three screens in here and it taint enough. It taint enough. All right. Uh, let's uh, talk teacher strike and, and what's been going on. Uh, here is a clip of ETFO President Sam Hammond uh, talking about where the strike is at. At the 11th hour. Uh, the government came with uh, impossible options, complicated language around our uh, fair and transparent hiring practices that we just could not agree to. Uh, and they also, uh, we had about four key issues on the table, uh, and they essentially said to us, pick one. You're not getting uh, all four of them. Uh, and we were just not prepared and still not prepared to do that because it was for both of our tables, teachers and education workers. Uh, that was ETFO President Sam Hammond on Friday. Let's bring in Sam Oosteroff on this, uh, MPP for Niagara West, and uh, keeping an eye on this file and, and helping out Minister Stephen Lecce. Sam, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Sam, you heard the clip, or sorry, uh, Sam, you heard the clip from uh, Sam on uh, the deal had changed or they were moving the yardsticks or whatever. How do you respond to this? Did, 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 was, did the government throw new things on the table during this negotiation? No, uh, look, we've been very clear since the beginning. The issues that he specifically uh, raised uh, is Regulation 274, uh, the Hiring Practices Regulation, and, and we've been clear that we believe uh, there should be the ability for school administration to ensure there's the best teacher in the front of uh, your child's class. We want to make sure that teachers aren't being uh, put into places in the front of class solely based on seniority, which is uh, what the union leadership wants. We want to make sure that uh, we're able to bring people of diverse backgrounds, people of, of different uh, different strengths to the front of class, and that we leave some of that discretion in the hands also of administration to make sure that the best teacher possible is able to provide a child's education, not solely based upon uh, seniority, which is what the union leadership wants. Uh, look, the reality is we've made significant moves at the bargaining table. We've just last week clarified and made absolutely sure that we have in writing our commitment to full-day kindergarten, the current model, you know, the gold standard Ontario's model of full-day kindergarten. Uh, it's what the unions wanted. It's what uh, EPCO talked about a lot. And, and even though we had committed to it publicly and spoken about it publicly. They wanted it in writing. The minister provided that assurance in writing to their team. But we haven't seen any movement from the union leadership on any of their issues. We've made good faith moves, but we haven't seen any movement from the union leadership. And what I'm hearing from parents and from, from educators and students alike is that they're frustrated. They want to get back into the classroom. They want to see kids back in class. 
Uh, and these, these escalating strikes are, are beginning to really be very frustrating for parents, families, and and uh, many people in the education sector alike. Uh, why is the chatter on 274 coming up now? And again, um, just this was in regard to hiring teachers on merit and, and their abilities and, their, and, and standard and such, as, as opposed to just giving them jobs because they've been in it longer than anyone else. Um, uh, how did this all come onto the table now? Well, we've been very clear about uh, our position on Regulation 274 last April in our uh, education announcement already under uh, the, the former minister, Minister Thompson, uh, we came forward with the fact that we were looking to make changes to Regulation 274 uh, that, that would ensure we have the best teacher in the front of class, uh, the most qualified, not necessarily the one who has just uh, the most experience in the system, the one who has uh, been there the longest, but the one who's best equipped for that particular classroom and recognizing that, uh, you know, there are a number of different variables that go into that, but we want to make sure that uh, when teachers are in front of class, they're they're prepared uh, to teach that class uh, properly. And so uh, this is something that we've been consistent on the whole way through, uh, and it's something we've said is important to make sure that we have uh, the best teachers possible in front of our class. Uh, Sam, obviously things are going to ra- or are ramping up and certainly will into next week. Uh, how long before uh, legislation, back to work, uh, that sort of chatter? Look, uh, we're focused on getting a deal. We're focused on getting a voluntary settlement, one that we were able to get with uh, QP last fall. Uh, we were able to get a, a voluntary settlement with the Educational Workers Alliance of Ontario. That was actually just ratified yesterday, in fact. Uh, so we can get deals. We want to get deals. But it takes two to tango. And we've made significant moves at the bargaining table with OSSTF. We've made moves on e-learning, on class sizes, bargaining in good faith. Uh, with uh, ETFO, we've made significant offers for uh, reasonable increases to compensation and, and, and wages, as well as, uh, you know, uh, confirming our commitment to full-day kindergarten. But we haven't seen the unions move on any of their demands. We haven't seen them change their positions one bit over the last well over 200 days of bargaining. Uh, and frankly, we need to see some action from their side as well. People are frustrated, uh, and we want to make sure that we're getting a deal, but we also want to see action and, and uh, moves from the union leadership. Are you concerned, Sam, this is becoming more of a PR war? Well, I, I think uh, we've been very clear about our, our commitment to investing more resources into special education, into mental health, and into uh, math strategies, focusing on areas that support kids, not just always increasing compensation and, and wages uh, as, our, as our sole focus. We want to make sure that, uh, that we're being respectful of the tax dollars that the hardworking people of this province uh, give to the government that that they are uh, that, that that they're bringing forward, and we want to make sure that this is uh, respected. So uh, we are doing our very best to make sure that uh, as we move forward, we keep that in mind and that we are uh, providing supports necessary going forward. So where are we now with this? What happens now? As this moves forward, any talks planned? How do you break this stalemate? Because it seems it's getting hotter, not cooler. So we stand ready for the mediator to bring us back. We are in conversations uh, today and and yesterday with AEFO, the the French Teachers uh, Union, uh, and and we stand ready as well to work with uh, any any of the union leadership who are willing to sit sit down and and have conversations. Uh, You know, we've called for uh, private mediation in the past. They didn't want to take that up. So until uh, the mediator that we have brings us back to the table, uh, we're saying, you know, we're trying to support families in the meantime, which is also why uh, just yesterday, since yesterday to today, the support for the parents uh, application actually went up by 100 
thousand parents. So we're over four hundred and fifty thousand parents right now. Almost a quarter of the parents in the system are are receiving support through uh, the support for parents uh, uh, program that we've put in place uh, because they're frustrated and they want to see a resolution. We want to see a resolution, but we need the unions to uh, act in good faith. Sam, we're getting a report now from Global News. The Ontario government has overpaid some parents for the days elementary teachers have been on strike. Education Minister Stephen Lecce announced the government will compensate parents of children affected by the elementary strikes with up to $60 a day. Elementary teachers obviously on a strike, but several parents saw four days' worth of compensation deposited into their accounts on Monday, although at that point elementary teachers had only been on strike uh, at their boards for one day. Do you want to answer to that? Yes, uh, you know there was a uh, a Microsoft. Uh, sorry, there was a there was a software glitch, and unfortunately, uh, you know there there was an issue there that has been resolved. And uh, I understand that our staff at the Ministry of Education, our officials have uh, addressed that issue very quickly, and that won't happen going forward. Uh, but I think it just underlines the fact uh, that you know having four hundred and fifty thousand families that are accessing this support it just also goes to show the fact that people have had enough. Uh, that people want to see this come to a resolution uh, and that our government is the only one that has their backs right now. Are you concerned or are others in the PC concerned that um, uh, those that maybe have a mat on for the premier or maybe your party have just decided to jump on this because it's something else to jump on uh, against your government no matter what the situation is? Um, You know what I'm not going to speak for uh, why people some people are, are saying certain things I know our commitment is to improving education, and that means putting more supports into the areas that actually uh, will improve children's education in the province, areas like mental health and special education, uh, math classes, skilled trades, these types of areas that we need to uh, improve. So we're focused on getting a deal that uh, keeps kids in class. I'm not going to speculate on on uh, why some people are, are perhaps spreading misinformation or or uh, are sharing particular points of view. Our main concern is getting a deal that uh, supports students, that that gets them back into the classroom and ensures uh, parents have predictability. Uh, How close do you think we are till all of a sudden everything's just shut down? We're on strike. Boom. No rotating, no nothing. Everybody's out. Well, look, I don't want to presuppose any any of the negotiations, but I think it's important that, uh, you know, that, that unions also recognize and the union leadership recognizes that people are getting very frustrated. I hear from a lot of parents in my riding uh, every single day who, who just want to deal, who want to see uh, both sides come together and, and, and resolve this because it's extremely uh, frustrating and, and annoying for families as well as, uh, you know, damaging to students' education. So uh, we, we obviously have made significant moves at the bargaining table, like I said, on e-learning, on class sizes, on full-day kindergarten. Uh, we've moved, but we haven't seen the union leadership move at all. So uh, we have to see some movement. It takes two to tango, and uh, we have to see union leadership also respond to our bargaining. Sam Oosteroff has been with us, MPP for Niagara West on the education file. Sam, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Talk to you. It is 1246. It's 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dave Woodward, Global News. Dave was uh, went down to the picket lines and chatted with those uh, on the picket line earlier today. Dave, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Not at all. Thanks, Scott. What's it like down there? It was actually pretty busy. There is, uh, I know that... Uh, Sam Hammond, the uh, president of the Elementary Teachers Federation, was saying that they're expecting about 10,000 teachers. Uh, It didn't look quite that busy, but there were definitely a few thousand that were there. Um, I also caught, uh, you know, other parents and students that were out there as well. So 
it was quite busy this morning. So uh, what, what's the tone now? I mean, it obviously feels like things are ramping up. What's the tone? I, I would think that, you know, a lot of the time, I think that uh, the teachers and parents that I spoke to uh, were hopeful that a deal could be done. Uh, but more than that, I think this rally really kind of served for a lot of these members as kind of a reminder of what they're doing. Uh, when you, whenever you have that many people in an area at the same time uh, rallying for the same cause, I think that you feel a little empowered. And I, I would say that's exactly how they're feeling right now. Uh, do you get the impression everyone is on the teacher side, no one is on the government side? Uh, obviously, down at the uh, right in front of the education ministry, uh, there are definitely more people yeah. uh, for um, the teachers than not. Although that that being said, there was one gentleman who uh, lives in the area. He came down and was talking to some of the police officers uh, who were, I guess, marshalling this uh, this rally, uh, and he wanted them gone. He wanted them out. He didn't understand why they needed to be rallying. Um, of course, uh, if you know Toronto at all, the education ministry is right across from the CBC building as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, it's a very busy area, lots of cars, a lot of people that are, you know, walking or trying to walk around the area. Um, a lot of people honking horns in support of the teachers, uh, but certainly not everybody was behind them. Uh, any chatter, any talk, as I mentioned, this seems to be ramping up. Are, are, are we heading for a train wreck here, or is there any sort of any sort of sign of, of any sort of resolution here? You know, I spoke with Sam Hammond uh, while I was down at the rally. Um, he didn't speak to the uh, general uh, membership, but he did. You know, he was taking you know selfies with people, shaking hands, that kind of thing. Uh, and he still seems to think that there is a deal at the table. Um, when I talked, when I was uh, at the press conference at the FO headquarters a couple of days ago, Sam Hammond uh, said it seemed as though the government wants to scuttle these negotiations, um, but he's still very open to what's going on in terms of uh, bargaining and wants to get back to the table. Uh, we just had Sam Oosteroff on MPP for Niagara West talking about the education file, and he said so far uh, only the government has made concessions, uh, not the union. As, as Sam said, uh, Sam uh, Hammond of the ETFO, is, has he commented on that? He hasn't said anything about those uh, exact comments. He has in the past, though, uh, said that they are looking uh, not necessarily to make concessions, but they do want to bargain. They, they, he said that they did have um, parts of the deal in place before the government came back, and he said that they made ridiculous uh, offers that they couldn't accept. Um, now, does that mean that there are concessions that he's not willing to make? Uh, he wouldn't say. Uh, how close to a deal they were. He wouldn't say either, although he said that they were close on about three or four issues. Um, But salary was not one of them. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, when these strikes first started, Sam Hammond told me that he wouldn't necessarily back down on salary, uh, but he said he wants to get to the bargaining table in order to talk about that. Uh, Clearly, they didn't even get to that point when they were bargaining uh, last week. Um, whether or not any of that means that he's going to make any concessions, I don't know. Uh, this has turned into quite the PR war, hasn't it? It really has. I mean, we've spoken to a lot of people. I know Alyssa uh, Friedman is one of the, the people that, that talks with us yep. about this pretty often. 
and, and it's it really is who's got the ear of the parents, and, and especially earlier on, and definitely with the OSSTF, the high school teachers, you hear the union uh, membership talk about how well or, or polling, uh, internal polling as to who's on their side. Do they still have the parents' uh, backing? And all the parents that I have talked to uh, throughout the last three or four weeks, and they've all said that they're pretty supportive of what's going on. How long that will last, it's hard to say. I know we've had callers uh, here at uh, Global News Radio 640 Toronto that have said that, you know, they're against the teachers, but they don't want to actually give their names because yeah. they're afraid of reprisal in the classroom. Whether that has uh, anything to do with what's going on or not, I'm not sure, but um, or whether or not that would happen, it's, it's yet to be seen. Uh, we know that uh, the union has told us that, uh, I think it was something like 95%, don't quote me on this number, 95% of teachers who voted voted for strike action. Do we actually know how many or what percentage of teachers actually did vote in this? Yeah, we, the, the number is 98%, according to Sam Hammett. But as far as how many, uh, I don't know. And that's not a number that the union is, is giving up. Because I'm hearing, um, I'm hearing that a lot of teachers aren't voting in these things and that it's, a, it's, it's less than 50%. And I've got yeah. nothing to base that on other than hearsay. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, because the union's not coming out with that number, it's hard to verify. Um, I can tell you that none of the teachers looked like they were upset to be there today. Uh, none of the teachers that were there at the rally were negative towards the union. Um, in fact, you know, one of the, the chants from uh, Kim Fry, who's a uh, who's somebody within the Toronto uh, sector in education, uh, she was saying uh, over the microphone, you know, nobody is being bullied to be here. And there was a loud cheer after that. So I think the people that are showing up to these rallies, the ones that are actually out on the picket lines, they're definitely in favor of this, but how many um, how many teachers are are not there or are you know just putting on a brave face? That's hard to tell. Uh, what about everybody knows and, and polling numbers will show this? What Ontarians think of our premier at this point? He certainly isn't polling with with great numbers. Uh, that's for sure. Are, are people do you think concentrating on the issue here, or is it you know what we don't like anything these guys do, so we're all piling on? You know, I think that that's another difficult one, Scott. It's hard to tell because uh, we know, especially last year, there was a, a huge issue um, with some of the, uh, the the way that the premier was putting things out, the way that he was trying yeah. to uh, put out his message. So um, I know that during today's rally, they were talking about how, um, you know, education wasn't in a great spot when Doug Ford came in. It's just now worse. So I don't know if necessarily we'd be having this conversation if a different government was in, but it's it's certainly happening with the government we have now. All right, Dave Woodard has been with us. Global News, make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Dave, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. It is 12.54. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. I wonder if the union feels that uh, they shouldn't have made Dalton McGinty walk the plank way back when. I wonder if the union feels that maybe even Patrick Brown shouldn't have been piled on way back when uh he might have been a little easier no you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml canada's ambassador to china dominic barton says that uh, there is an incredible chill 
uh, between these two countries, meaning Canada and China. Uh, Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson sat in on a special in-house, uh, special uh, House of Commons committee on all of this. Here's some of that report. People in the room were so angry, they were just about shaking. This ferocious anger from both the Canadians and the Chinese, both sides believing that they're being wronged. Meetings that used to take place regularly don't take place. Nothing is normal about the relationship right now. And he says Canada will not move to normalize relations until the two Michaels are released. But he doesn't have any sense of when that might be. How close is your company? Yes, you've put your shares into a blind trust, but there was a financial connection there. And at some point, you will no longer be the ambassador, and there, there could be again. So there's still a lot of criticism and sort of concern around that. Uh, and the last comment that Mercedes was talking about was many are questioning uh, Dominic Barton's uh, uh, financial uh, situation over there and business interests that he may have and whether there is, in fact, a conflict of interest. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, and is on the line now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Your thoughts on uh, the comments that the ambassador to, uh, to China said in regard to uh, the chill is real. He said that, well, it was so bad, people were shaking in the room. They were so angry. Well, this one is exactly that. It's an issue of, of anger on both sides. Um, Chinese feel aggrieved that we have detained uh, Madame Meng. Canadians are distraught that uh, two of our Citizens are being held on what we believe to be trumped-up charges in retaliation for Madame Meng's detention. So uh, officials, senior officials, are human beings. They have emotions. They can sometimes deliberately show them, but I don't doubt that these were genuine on both sides. Um, I would love to ask uh, the ambassador to China why the anger that Canada is feeling from China is not felt by the United States, who are the ones who who initiated uh, the arrest warrant for the Huawei CFO. Why is Canada being the, the, the kicking boy here? And, and no, uh, none of this anger is being directed to the United States, who are the ones that initiated all of this. Fair enough. And I don't doubt that the... I don't doubt that the Huawei and some people in the senior levels of the Communist Party of China are aggrieved in the United States, but they've got a very long list of issues in that case. Um, we are singled out partly because we held her, partly their anger that we did so at the behest of the United States of Washington, whom they have deep suspicions, and I think partly um, because we're smaller, uh, they can more easily get away with it. Um, our relationship is now damaged. I think opinion of China is maybe damaged for the long term, a long time at least, in the eyes of the Canadian public. And so, uh, but with Washington, they can't quite afford to do that. They've got too many interests in play all over the world, in their home market, etc. So we are a little bit isolated, and uh, we're getting the, the channeled anger. I'm sure behind the scenes, the Americans are getting some as well, but the Chinese case, it'll be tempered by... They need to meet with Trump. They need to make deals, trade deals, etc. So we're we're uh, uh, uniquely isolated, I'm afraid. But at the end of the day, if the U.S. was to say no, would this all be over? I mean, would they could they drop these charges? And 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 the real way to get the Huawei CFO free is to have America do so. There's no doubt that America could drop the charges, and if they should do so, there'd be no case to answer. It would die. And Madame Wong would be free to go within yeah. hours or days. And, and uh, China is aware of that, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. They've got some of the highest-priced legal talent in Canada. Um, 
uh, working on this case. She's got a dream team of lawyers. So uh, why uh, isn't Can- why isn't Canada why isn't the PMO capitalizing on this? Why are they not directing more of the attention towards the Americans? Why are they not trying to 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 fight back or or even deflect the energy to to the source? Well, I think one of the challenges is it's been cast in Canada as a question of rule of law. In other words, we're not going to give in to pressure. We're not going to, no matter what, we won't make a deal. Ambassador Barton made that clear yesterday, no exchange. Um, they're convinced, I think, partly for domestic political reasons, that to be seen to be dealing on this, to make a, a swap or a deal, uh, or convince Americans to drop their own charge would be seen as caving to the Chinese. So we're, we're really in a bind partly of American making and partly of our own making. What about the allegations against the uh, ambassador to uh, China, Dominic Barton, that there is a conflict of interest here with him? Many have said that the, you know, the elites have business interests there. That's why we're taking the stance we are. Well, I've met with him on several occasions, and I must say he has a stellar business career. I mean, to be the managing partner of McKinsey, in effect, in charge of that massive worldwide uh, organization, and he's impressive in person, as you might expect him to be, in my opinion. Um, yes, he has a business past in China. Um, many American ambassadors to to China have been uh, um, previous business leaders of business interests there. I think you have to look to the character of the person and their in, in their ability to look beyond that. Um, if we were to say our political leaders could not come from a business past or could not have worked in business before becoming a uh, a politician, I think that'd be a great loss for the nation. Uh, he's put his holdings in a blind trust. Um, I judge him to be of high character. I think we have to go with that. So you don't uh, see a, you don't see a conflict of interest here. If he had present holdings there, and if he didn't have a blind trust, absolutely. Uh, but um, my measure of the man, this is a man who doesn't. He's not short of money. I'd be managing partner McKinsey. Um, yeah. His salary, his remuneration would be. In the seven figures, be my guess is he's not uh, he's not uh, beholden. He doesn't need a few dollars. Uh, that would be argument of many wealthy people, I suppose. But he doesn't need the money. This is a thankless job, especially now. Mm. Um, in terms of he, I believe he's been offered this job in the past, has turned it down. Um, I'm not saying that it's out of his controversy. And you do have officials who know China particularly well who could have gone, but do they know the prime minister? Do they have the ability to pick up the phone and call the PM? China ambassador didn't used to be one of those jobs. The ambassador of the United States was probably the only one where that was a necessary attribute. It seems now that Beijing is in a league where PMO and the prime minister, prime ministers, I think you could say, going forward, will want somebody they know really well. Uh, Obviously, with the tension that is uh, now even the ambassador has pointed out to the extent of, of how bad it is, is that affecting our ability to get Canadians out of China? We understand the plane is finally in Wuhan. Has that had any impact on this, do you think? I worry about that. I, I don't know because I'm not privy to the complex negotiations, and some of the delays seem to me plausible. I think there must have been and were, was some tough negotiation on the question who gets on the plane. Okay, it can't be people who have been identified as suspect cases that have the disease, but then the complex question of what about our um, permanent residents who aren't citizens? What about our citizens who came in on a Chinese passport? Um, and it appears that many of those people won't be allowed to leave. 
that may have delayed issues as well. And then we seems we were unlucky with the weather on one day. So we're late to the game for sure. But I, I don't know enough to know whether the political problems delayed the evacuation. They can't have helped, I can tell you, because Chinese officials have little incentive right now to bend over backwards to help Canada. Uh, and I'm sure that's a factor in other issues as well, trade, etc. It's not a time to be asking favors from the Chinese if you can avoid it. Uh, there, uh, in the House yesterday, uh, when questioned about all of this, the coronavirus and, sh- and such, the Conservatives brought up the two Michaels and saying, hey, since we're evacuating Canadians, why not bring the two Michaels home? Uh, the Prime Minister just exploded and said, how dare you even bring these two issues together? Was that way off bounds to bring that up, or is this something that Canadians are concerned about? Well, I don't think it's up, out of bounds to bring it up, uh, but it's totally improbable. In other words, I mean, believe me. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And they're down in Wuhan. uh, They're near Beijing. Um, It's just, it was more improbable question to me than than irreverent or or problematic. I think what I was, what I was, what surprised me in all of this was the prime minister and the liberal party's reaction, how they pretty much just exploded and how dare you even bring that up which is almost suppressing Canadians down into thinking well can we not ask questions about this can we yeah, not Canadians should be able to ask questions even tough ones like that even ridiculous questions I mean these are questions and on balance and this is why I did actually on, on balance support the committee I think sometimes there's more heat than light comes out of it but I think in a democracy we need to be able to question officials senior officials on files of interest to Canadians in general um, what I don't want is um, hoping that, I'm hoping that we don't see MPs just staging their comments for the media uh, or the public. I mean, I hope they're really asking genuinely probing questions in a respectful manner. Um, but it's fair to ask, could you not? But if the government, of course, could just send a plane to Beijing to bring them back, it would be on its way right now. Um, and that's just not happening right. because they're welded to this issue of Madame Meng. Uh, and being welded to that issue, and from what we understand as far as the extradition hearing, this could take years. Um, is this is this what we have for the next half decade or so? Well, there's the worst case scenario. But uh, we had a Chinese smuggler in Canada, Lai Changsheng case, about 20 years ago, um, 15 years ago. Um, I was in the embassy at the time as the minister of political, and and when I arrived, I said I'd try and get him out all the time I was there, and then I went back to be director general later. And I, my mandate was, let's try and get him back, sent back to to China, because we really didn't want this criminal. It took 11 years, 10 to 11 years to get him out. So with a good legal team, and they've got it, uh, if he, if she's not extradited, um, I mean, it doesn't waive, they can always, she could always waive the right to hearings and proceed directly to the United States. That's not going to happen. Uh, the Minister of Justice can intervene any time and say, game over. Um, but failing that... I think we may be in for a fair amount of time. I don't want to depress myself to think it's five years, but it's not impossible. What does this mean for the two Michaels? They're caught in the middle of all of this and now the coronavirus issue. Right. And that's one of the reasons I have deep concern, many reasons. What about their safety and, and how are they doing? I mean, we have no way of knowing in the midst of this epidemic. Well, they get once. Well, there is a fear as well. Now, it's pretty easily easy to isolate a prison in theory. But they're not going to get the best of care by definition. Prisoners generally don't. Um, but coronavirus aside, I'm really troubled by the imbalance here. Madam Mung, who doesn't even under house arrest, she can roam with a bracelet anywhere in the city, go to parties. She's got a few time limitations at night. 
but she's otherwise quite free to live a, a, a decent life. They're stuck in a hellhole of a Chinese prison. Yeah. Although I'm sure the Chinese are being very careful to make sure that they uh, they um, they stay reasonably healthy despite all of that. But it's not equal, and that really troubles me. And so, yes, she can wait it out there in Vancouver in one of her mansions, but I really worry about the long-term suffering and consequences for the two Michaels. Yeah, That's, yeah. At some point... It's, it's got to be, li- it, be life-altering already. Absolutely, absolutely. PTSD, yeah. you get PTSD for a lot less than that. And uh, it's super hard. on. I've been in many Chinese prisons just visiting prisoners, and I was happy to get out of there after I was doing my duty. Uh-huh. And uh, it's, these are not pleasant places, uh, prisons anywhere, but I would argue in China, particularly, particularly tough regimes. And, um, and they've been questioned by the Ministry of State Security for over six months. They're a very tough gang as well. So I, I, I put a high priority in getting them out. And at some point, we may have to make some painful compromise to do so. What does that mean? Well, I would say, I'm not saying we do a swap, um, but I, I do look at the Cold War cases of where Americans were arrested and then exchanged at Checkpoint Charlie. I was serving Eastern Europe at the time. Mm. I'm not saying that's ideal or good, and it'd be immensely unpopular in Canada in many ways, um, but I, um, I would, it is legal. The Minister of Justice has that power at some point. Uh, that calculation may have to be, be thought about hard just to end the suffering of the Michaels. Now, the danger of that is, well, what about it? Does that not incentivize them to do it again? So in my mind, you'd have to have some very tough negotiations behind the scene with some undertaking, hard to enforce, I accept, on the Chinese side not to do so again. I just, knowing what they're going through, I just don't want this to be never-ending, because it's easy for us to be tough, yeah. but they're the ones who are bearing the consequences. Uh, does China look at the way we are treating the Huawei CFO compared to the two Michaels? Does that even register? Uh, is it worth tightening up restrictions on her? Would that only accelerate all of this? Well, I don't think it's possible within our law. I mean, the government can't yeah. dictate to the judge what he should do. He has set those terms, and and uh, maybe the Crown could make a motion to her, but the tit-for-tat thing, I, in a way, I like the fact that it demonstrates that we are a just and fair place, that yeah. she's not yet been found guilty. Uh, to me, I don't want to lower our values. Yeah. But I did say to the Chinese, when I took a delegation there in November um, with our Minister of Justice and, and John Baird, etc., and they and I made the point about the extraordinary inequality and I could see on their faces that it was registering. I don't think within the written documents, the party necessarily, but at that moment in November, uh, the details which we worked through, the precise conditions, uh, I think I saw flickerings of recognition on their side. Wow. What's uh, that, that? This was unequal. What's that like, Gordon, when you're sitting there eye to eye with these people? What is that like when you're having those conversations? Well, I've got the scars and bruises from... Um, I'm in my 34th year of full-time work on China, so it's not something I'm used to. I went earlier in April for a meeting um, with the Central Committee of the Communist Party and sat with 10 of them on the other side by myself. Mm. And we went on for what was supposed to be a 40 meeting. We went in for two and a half hours. So uh, it's tough, but, you know, it's, if you've done it many times, that helps. 
And I, at the end of the day, I was a diplomat. I believe in diplomacy. I believe in communication. Um, just shouting through a microphone of a distance is not the only way to do things. Sometimes it's more productive to meet with people. And I find after about 20 minutes, they've run through their talking points. They can run through them again a couple more times, but often you then get somewhat more spontaneous or enlightening responses. And and that's the hope. But, mm-hmm. but of course... Uh, my delegation came back. Uh, the beef thing was lifted, pork thing was lifted while we were there, but uh, there was no movement discernible on the Michaels. But that's not the point. I mean, if you're in a struggle like this, uh, you've got to be thinking long-term with endurance. You talked about the damage to Canada. Going forward, what can we expect here? I see a little bit of moderation. Personally, I think we see a little bit of recognition on the Chinese side that um, we're not pushovers that we're not going to forget about the Michaels, that we're not going to just cough up Madame Meng, uh, and that they have their interest in Canada as well. Uh, they have a market here. We buy three times as much as they do as we sell to them. Um, we have a large community of, of overseas Chinese, which is of interest to them in good ways and bad. Does the coronavirus and, humble them in any way? Because, I think so. Because, again, you know, it's great to have world domination in 5G, but if you can't keep your food chain from being contaminated, what does that say on a world platform? Absolutely. Well, they went through a swine fever that's killed most of their national herd of pork, and they're in desperate need. Prices are up 70% or plus. Um, uh, I was in Beijing during the SARS event, which was humbling and, and a learning experience for them. I think they've learned some of the lessons, not all of them. Uh, but this is paralyzing uh, much of the economic life of China, and it's a big challenge for the leadership with their prestige on the line. Gordon Holden has been with us, Director of the China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta. Gordon, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, can you say Burlington Bulldogs? The latest coming out of Queen's Park regarding the teacher strike. And the Canadian ambassador to, and the Canadian ambassador to China says the chill is real between these two countries and could be for years. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast.